3: I think the front office has a lot of work to do this offseason, but firing Roberts is not part of the solution. I don't think that that's uh, addition by subtraction. But
4: it, it would feel good. It would feel... <laughs> 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 what does that for? That comes for something, right? It would feel kind of good for
5: a few months. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to Take Line. I'm your host, Jason Concepcion. We've got a great soccer-themed show for you today. The footy is is wonderful right now. It's been a while since we've had an active pro on the pod, but that streak ends today with our the addition of Kellen Acosta, midfielder for LAFC and the U.S. men's national team. He will join us to discuss LAFC's regular season success and preview uh, LAFC's entry into the uh, into the playoffs after a first-round bye. They play uh, the Galaxy. This Thursday, El Trafico is on. Uh, Los Angeles soccer fans are very nervous right now because I think that LAFC fans would rather lose to Nashville than lose to the Galaxy. But it'll be – it's exciting. It should be exciting. Uh, And then we'll be joined by Wall Street Journal reporters Josh Robinson and John Clegg, the co-authors of the new book Messi vs. Ronaldo, which is a deep dive into the careers of two of the iconic – Players in world sports over the last 15 years and how they transition into their respective twilights. Dodgers out, Mets out, Braves out, the Yankees clinging for their lives to life. What does this mean? What does this mean for baseball after uh, recent tweaks to the playoff format? Is the playoff format broken? Should we be concerned that the best teams in baseball are on the way out of the of the playoffs, are gone, are not here? What does this mean? Is this just luck? Joining me now are super producers Ryan and Zuri to unpack – Yet another Dodgers collapse <laughs> and try and figure out like what, what exactly – what is what is going on here? Um, the LA Times published a, a opinion piece. I think it was like either the morning that the Dodgers were later eliminated or the day before that was like an argument for the Dodgers just being able to advance because – you know, they were in first place by miles, you know, miles ahead of every other team. And now here they are. They're out. It's interesting to be talking about this. I, I don't know necessarily where I stand. My my instinctive reaction is quit whining. This is <laughs> – it's the playoffs. It's ra- it's random sometimes. And this is what happens, especially with, with wild cards and five-game series and st- things of that nature. That said, these were, like, really great teams that are not – in the playoffs anymore. What is going on your thoughts? And how are you doing this week, this Monday morning after your Dodgers have been eliminated over the weekend?
4: <laughs> well, I mean, I'm a little despondent. You know, other thing is we did just advance. We did also not play in the wildcard uh, division. So that yep. actually does happen. Um, we were talking off air that, that this is like kind of par for the course for Dave Roberts. And this could have happened in the NLCS. This could have happened really in, in any round, but, um, I, I, I don't know. I say it both ways. Like, if you do win 111 games, um, you get the buy, and you should be a team that's good enough to handle a wild card team that advances. But on the flip side, I was just doing like some quick math on this. And the NFL playoffs is, is probably the standard that we adhere to is like, oh, they've got it right. Um, they play 17 games in the NFL season and it's a single game elimination. So that one game represents about 6% of your season. Uh, quick math, one divided by 17.
5: Yeah,
4: yeah. Uh, the division round of, of the Major League Baseball playoffs is five games, so five out of 162 is 3% of your season. So if we're striving for equity, maybe it should be like a nine-game series in the division round. <laughs> 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 and, and maybe we just play three nine-game series and then the best team would... With... It would be hard to argue that the best team doesn't win a nine-game series. But um well
5: it's, it's hindsight.
4: that
3: would make the World Series a battle of attrition every <laughs> year. <laughs> okay.
5: Well, I guess this is <laughs> here's my here's my question, and this is really what it comes down to, right? Are we looking to incentivize the best team to advance, or are we looking for entertainment value for uh-huh. for management, for an introduction of some amount of randomness that makes this event watchable, you know, it's like over in the EPL, whoever accrues the most points wins, period. There's no there's no playoffs. It's just the regular season matters. Now, the upside of that is you really feel like you earned a win when your team wins. The, the downside of that is there are teams that just know for a fact they're not going to sniff it. Ever. there's not a chance in they in hell unless uh you know a team's plane crashes or street like really it would it yeah, like several. three it would take like several like devastating plane crashes of multiple <laughs> teams for a team to like have a chance at the championship and now is that what you want now i i guess i don't know the answer to this
3: well, we definitely don't want the, no, the we don't plane want the, crashes we don't want so you know the the bad teams stay bad and fight against relegation. Uh, That is their purpose and their fate. But in terms of the American uh, playoff system, it's never going to go away. New sports that we're implementing now have their own budding playoff systems because there's just no shot of trying to get this audience to get behind a regular season and done. Uh, type format at the top level. Like I just don't think it'd be accepted one by the fans and two by the owners because you're leaving so much money on the table in terms of what playoffs do. So I think nine games is crazy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you play
1: 162
4: if you can't play nine? I mean, like it's, it's this is how math works.
3: I think that the excitement of the one game wild card was the perfect amount of chaos. I think that it gave the underdog just as much of a chance to do what's been done now. But something about the three game playoff to me just bothers me in terms of a team that wins 100 games having to win an entire series worth of games, which is just two games. I get it, but Uh it should be just one and done with your best pitcher. And you can move on to the next round, I think.
4: That's definitely the most exciting. And I think there's converging thoughts because on one hand, you want teams that won fewer games to have a tougher path to winning a championship. I think that's like the bottom line. But then you also want excitement in the playoffs. So how do you how do you balance those two? There was a game over the weekend, the Mariners game. They played 18 innings and there was no runs through 17 innings. I I don't know how exciting that is. To watch.
5: It was not. It was not <laughs> exciting. <laughs> but it
3: was great news for Yankees slash Guardian yeah. fans because the Astros are exhausted, right? So that's cool.
5: Well, this is small sample size, right? This is the, the the first playoffs where a lot of these weeks have have been implemented. Yeah. Are we jumping to conclusions? Like, you know, one of the things that strikes me about this conversation is if the Braves were still in the playoffs, we wouldn't really be talking about this because the Mets choke like (laughs) historically they've done this the dodgers do this the dodgers also disappoint consistently and then you know there's some asterisks in there including their uh their confrontation with the then heavily cheating uh houston astros several years ago um but but it's not necessarily a surprise when the dodgers come up short but it's the, it's the addition of the Braves to this that makes you think, hmm, is there something to it? And I guess I wonder, are we just making too much of this?
4: Perhaps. Um, yeah, I mean, these are big markets that went down, too, and there's, like, the TV contract stuff that I don't think fans should even worry about, but that's a part of it. And, like, also, like, do you want chalk? Do you want the number one seeds to all advance? We see that in some other sports, and it's not exactly the most advertising thing to watch, so... You know, as a Dodgers fan, I don't like this, but like, it, it, like there are some like these like up and coming franchises that are winning, and in in general, that's good. Parity is good, right?
3: Well, you know, it's interesting. It's two different discussions, though, right? Because like it's the teams that were able to get into the playoffs upsetting teams in the first round, uh-huh. but you know, the number one seed still has to play the the full division series, yeah. and one might even argue that. The Dodgers were given a break when the what? How how many wins did the Padres have?
4: Like 89. Yeah. Okay. And they, and eighty nine, yeah, and they and
3: they defeated a hundred and one win Mets team, right? Right. So I don't know. It's uh it's interesting. On paper, before that series began, that looked like a cakewalk to the NLCS. I think that's like the takeaway for me. Is just like I'm not sure how the Dodgers lost that series.
5: Zuri, I remember after Game One, <laughs> yeah. watching baseball tonight, and it's like Poppy and Pedro are like, "Here it goes again." The Dodgers just own, Loppies, the, yeah, <laughs> yeah. The Dodgers just own the Padres. Yeah. They are their daddies. Yeah, you just knew it was gonna happen. You felt it. You knew it the whole time. There was never a moment, and I was like. We're tra- this is a little too strident. Uh-huh. Were you concerned at that moment? No. There was no reason to be.
4: I was yeah. drinking the water. Even after game two, I think you asked me if I was concerned. I was like, hey, we'll take it this weekend. I think the thing I think about now, though, is we have too many players on this team that have won championships. And I think when, when you're making a playoff push, you need a lot of hungry guys hunger. that haven't you need done hunger. It before. Yeah. And I think that's the through line. Even like Bryce Harper with the Phillies, he's never won one. We've got like... We, you know, we have guys that have won. Like Mookie's won with us, and he's won with Boston, and and we've got all these guys that just.
3: I mean, but Freddie just won. Freddie just and won. Just got right. there. Trey
4: so Trey won with Washington. You
3: should remember that hunger, though.
5: Yeah, I don't know if
4: you can recreate it when it's when it's not uh, natural.
5: It seems like Dave Roberts is going to be back. Yeah. That said, and I don't think that he is necessarily the problem. I don't think firing him necessarily changes anything. But I I. Maybe it's just because I'm here in LA. I have never felt Dodgers fans this frustrated and uh-huh. angry. Like they're, <laughs> I think it's something about banishing the kind of you know bubble championship asterisk yeah, and yeah. and and yet and on top of that yet another uh, frustrating elimination from the playoffs. And it just feels like at some point like somebody needs to somebody <laughs> needs to like get fired for this.
4: Well, it's it's not going to be Friedman. So, who's next? <laughs> who's next down
3: the line? That feels like a scapegoat style solution because the the man won 111 regular season games. He did. Players he really players did. win in the playoffs. Like to not even make it to game five, I can't put that on Roberts. I have to put that on the players on the field.
5: I don't disagree. I mean, and the pitchers did their jobs. It was just right. the hitting didn't yeah. show up. The lineup. Agreed.
4: Honestly, it's hard because, you know, 111 wins. I think we've won 10 division titles, I think, in a row. And so that's also the other side of the coin is there's all this all this success, and it doesn't when it doesn't come to fruition, it's it's more frustrating. And it's hard. There's a lot of guys that, like, we have to turn the page on. Like, Justin Turner yep. doesn't have it anymore. Yeah, nah, that's,
3: that's really what we need to talk about. <laughs> He's getting
4: about. beat on fastballs. Max Muncy is not a starting defensive infielder in the playoffs.
3: You should not move you know, forward with Joey Gallo as a part of your future. And if, that's yeah, also a bad idea. if you are not going to play him,
4: <laughs> right? So I think mean, that's where the frustration is. It's like, man, we've had all these guys that are like, you know, fan favorites that we do have to come to terms that okay, this isn't two thousand eighteen. This isn't. This isn't. They're not. They're not five years younger than they actually are right now.
3: I think the so, front office has a lot of work to do this offseason, but. Firing Roberts is not part of the solution. I don't think that that's uh, addition by it, subtraction. It would feel
4: good. It would feel- <laughs> <laughs> what are that counting for?
3: That comes for
5: something, right? It would feel kind of. I mean, good he for he slat out. Just out. Guaranteed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't. I don't say Gu- uh, that. Guaranteed a World Series. Yeah. Uh. I don't. Same
3: that. But he did that before he won 111 games. Yeah. So like he was yeah. walking the walk all year. So I feel like he put them in position at one, like, no, I I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't put this on Roberts. I put this on the hitters. He can't hit for them.
5: I don't disagree with you. And honestly, like in retrospect, that statement seems like, to Zuri's point, an attempt to paint a bunch of satisfied vets into a corner and make them fight their way out and say, okay, here's the goal. I've laid it down. Are, you good? are we, are we going to go for this or not? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean,
3: they responded. You know, if he'd said it, you know, a week ago, if he'd guaranteed it a week <laughs> ago, then, then it would look terrible. Then I'd be like, you know, I get it. There's a difference between a World Series winning team and a team that doesn't even reach the championship series. So if he'd said that a week ago, I'd understand the frustration. But to have said it at the beginning of the season and then have the type of season that the Dodgers had, mm-hmm. I feel like he backed that up. He did. And put them in a position to make him right. And if they'd won... That would have been one of the greatest predictions of all time. Yeah.
4: Well, let's let Dave manage the record season, and then we'll bring, like, Ryle Mondesi back or pick no <laughs> <Deo> Nomo. <laughs> so I'm just, like, cool dude who can fail and let him manage the playoffs, and then there's no issues.
5: <laughs> is this the most frustrated you've been for a playoff elimination?
4: No. Um, no. There's it? so many. Um, well, we played the Phillies in, like, 08, and 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 they there, there was a Matt Stairs home run in, like, 2006. That eliminated us. The Cardinals oh, wow. eliminated us. There's, like, there's a few inflection points <laughs> that were way worse than this, especially because that's when we were on our way to, you know, trying to win our first title since 88. I'm going to be honest. Like, after you win one, even though people say it's a bubble championship, you do kind of rest on your laurels. Like, okay, well, we have slayed the, the dragon, yeah, um, so to speak. But um, it is anti.
3: I can speak to that. Right. It lasts for a while. Like, if there's no asterisk next to it, I don't-
5: I don't buy into the asterisk sports uh construction particularly for pandemic stuff because like the whole world was in an asterisk yeah it's not like it was this weird blip that only pertained to sports it was the entire globe was going through this thing
3: right but i feel like that's why every sport puts the it's not the asterisk doesn't denote like a weirdness within the league it denotes that blip itself in time and what it did to respective seasons in terms of timing and format and location.
5: I would argue that it was harder. Hmm. Like I would honestly argue that for the bubble championships and uh, particularly for uh, the NBA and the MLB, that it was harder. It was actually harder in terms of like rhythm, in terms of- Not seeing your family. Not uh, seeing your family, but, being yeah. isolated, you know, like uh, the, the energy is different. Like, I just, I just feel like you could easily make an argument that it was harder, not easier.
3: I know that Julius Randle would disagree with you because the second,
5: <laughs> oh, not only did yeah. he have the best moments of
3: his career in, in MC Madison Square Garden, yeah. but the second that we came back, <laughs> he turned back into a pumpkin.
5: Well, the pumpkin I mean, that he's remained to this day. <laughs> a contract year is like Super Soldier Serum. I mean, it's amazing. It's amazing the way it can motivate you. All right, up next, Kellen Acosta. Joining us now, midfielder for LAFC and for the U.S. men's national team, Kellen Acosta, his first year with LAFC, has been an action-packed one. Uh, And, of course, uh, the MLS playoffs are ongoing with LAFC looking to face their crosstown rivals, the LA Galaxy, this Thursday. And that brings Kellen Acosta on TakeLine. Kellen, thanks so much for joining us.
2: Yeah, no problem at all. Thanks for having me.
5: Um, Lots to discuss, but first... I'd love to hear about your evolution as a player. You kind of like broke through as a left back, outside back. Now you're playing in the midfield. Was that always the goal midfield? Like how, do you, how did you see yourself evolving as a player?
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a midfielder at heart. <laughs> I mean, I, I honestly don't like playing outside back all that much. But I mean, for me, I just wanted to be on the field. So I was like, if that's where the coach wants to put me. I'm going to you know put my best foot forward and give it all I got and yeah, I'd hopefully perform well. But yeah, midfield is somewhere where I play with, you know, at the club level, national team, youth national team. And I was hoping to, in my pro days, I was hoping to be a midfielder as well. So it's been working out. It's been working out. I'm back in the midfield, so I'm happy about it.
5: Versatility, it's interesting. You know, there's a lot of conversations lately about, about players playing out of position because they're versatile enough to do it. Do you feel like versatility, weirdly, like hurts you a little bit because it's like, you'll be asked to do stuff that you can do, but maybe you... Don't necessarily want
2: to do. Yeah, no, it's definitely a blessing and a curse, right? <laughs> like I said, like I always want to, you know, just be on the field and contribute, but I also want to play to my strengths and use the attributes that I have to kind of just hone in on a, one position and that I can elevate my game. It's obviously, it's tough when, you know, one game you can play outside back, another game you could be playing. You know, center mid, you can be attacking mid. So it's, that's obviously tough. But yeah, like I said, I mean, I just want to be on the field. I want to play. I want to help contribute any which way possible. And I'm more focused on the overall success of the team. So that's my that's my main goal.
5: What's your, like, when you think about your game, like as a six, seven, eight, somewhere in there, what's your ideal
2: role? Yeah, for me, I, I'm kind of like an in-betweener between a 6 and an 8 rather than an 8 and a 10. I'm more like a defensive-minded 8 in a sense so like if we were to play so the, depending on the formation because i mean i feel like i'm a good one v one defender cover a lot of grounds i mean I, I can uh come into the attack and create things but that's not like my expertise per se so i would say i'm more like an in-betweener at six and an eight
5: we're heading into as we're recording this we're heading into the opening of playoff weekend for mls obviously lafc with the bye and they've brought in so many players over the course of the last few months, including yourself what's that been like? the kind of culture of the team? It seems like it took a little time to gel, but now it is what's it been like with all these new players, including yourself coming in
2: yeah, I mean I mean credit to John and Co from the organization of creating this deep team team of great players who have a lot of quality and I mean I, I like to highlight the debt because I mean, every day is kind of a dogfight because we all want to play and that competitive edge is huge for us and that's that shows the overall strength of the team and it shows on the field with our success and winning Supporters' Shield. And you, know, you mentioned like the addition, not only myself and other, other players, but it's kind of just like a puzzle. We each are a piece in that puzzle and we kind of fit into the system, into the way that Steve wants to play and how the organization, you know, wants to produce. And yeah, I mean, like you said, I mean, there's definitely growing pains. Obviously, you got to get accustomed to new players and new systems and different attributes and characteristics that everyone brings. But, you know, as the games went on, I think we're starting to really understand each other and have that, you know, that those relationships on the field that are definitely needed. And I think we're definitely clicking at the right time. <laughs> Postseason right now, you know, get all cylinders firing. But yeah, I mean, I think we have so much quality, but I mean, we can talk about what we've done in the past and how good we are, but it's all about executing. Yeah, And, you know, the, these games and the playoffs, I mean, it's a different beast, different beast from regular season. You don't get a makeup game. You don't get like, oh, we got next week to correct this problem. It's like, it's here now. And the game is little details. I mean, there's no margin for errors. And I think we have a very experienced group to really make a deep run in the playoffs and hopefully lift up the, the trophy in the end.
5: Was there a moment over the last few weeks or months where you thought, you really felt like, oh, this is—it's happening now. We're we're beginning to click because you know this relationship is happening, or we don't need to. You know, I can just off a look of one of my teammates understand that they want to do this. Is that, was there a moment like that?
2: Uh, I can't really pinpoint it. I think it just overall, just coming into the locker room, you know, having that Cromartie in the locker room, having like the banter. Get everyone, you know, joyous and, and into it, and joking around in a sense. But then getting on the field and just, you know, knowing each other's tendencies. I think it's just, you know, evolution over time. Just, you know, constant, constant things to kind of build our relationships has definitely been helpful. And I think for me, what's really highlighted the group is the adversity that that we face, where we rode a lot of highs and and sometimes we got punched in the teeth. But I think just the resilience of the group. I think overall. I mean, we could have just folded, right? I mean, that was kind of, everyone was kind of preying on our downfall, right? All (laughs) LFC Yeah,
5: they were. (laughs) Yeah.
2: This, LAFC, that. But it just shows the strength of the group that we still rolled up our sleeves and got it done. The Supporters Shield. And I think that's a testament to my teammates, to the staff, because I think those signs of adversity is what's going to help us grow. And it's going to help us uh, in these tough matches coming up. Talk to
5: us about the environment there you're gonna be playing at home all throughout the playoffs that's huge talk to us about the feeling the energy at home it's really a unique and a singular experience man home games at LAFC it's it's fantastic
2: Nah, no, definitely it's kind of just indescribable I mean 3252 that's our energy our 12th men and women right we're going onto the field just hearing them you know despite the result they're there for us they're our heartbeat And I know I've been on the other side of it for a few years and I just know how hard it is. It makes it, you mean you're talking about, I wanna catch my breath, but I can't. (laughs) I'm running and the fans are screaming at me. So I know what it's like and what it feels like being on the other side of it. And then this year, having them just backing us and feeling their energy, feeling their passion, their support has gone such a long way. We always like highlight that we have no away games because our support is immense all over the country. Yeah, and that's a testament to the environment that we're in, the environment that the thirty two fifty two has established, and it's always exciting to be at home. And that was a huge accomplishment for us was to get that first seed so we can play, you know, a huge game at home with them backing us.
5: And the next few months, there's just. It never stops, right? You know, we're transitioning towards World Cup as well. How are you feeling as we move towards that? You're a long tenured member of the U.S. men's national team. What's it like knowing we're going into a World Cup year? This feels like the most talented, you know, honestly, one of the most talented, if not the most talented group I can remember seeing.
2: Yeah, I mean, sometimes I just kind of have to pinch myself because this is a childhood dream that, you know, could soon be a reality for me. And, um, you know, it it went from all the World Cup is coming to now it's like a countdown. And it's one of those things where it's just, it's hard to describe because you're like, you're trying to remain focused because we have huge chats at hand at LA, but it's like, it's coming. It's coming. And so, from my standpoint, my preparation is to be present now. Yeah. And to one, take every training in every game for what it is and give it my best effort and, you know, grow and be in good form. And then hopefully at the end of this, hold up a trophy and, you know, use these games to help me establish myself on the national team so I could not only be selected for the World Cup team, but also play in it. And like you mentioned that we do have a, we have a great team with great players that are, you know, paving their way through some top teams around the world. I mean, as a testament to those guys and their hard work and it just shows the growth of Americans in the sport. Yeah. And it's definitely a proud feeling. And I'm hoping that there will be more and more. And it'll just be something that's normalized rather than like saying how crazy it is.
5: Wait, what's it like from the inside, that perspective that you have seeing the kind of growth, not only of American talent, but of the kind of fan culture around soccer support? Like you, to your point, you know, like there was a moment where it was like oh look how fun this is isn't this curious isn't this cool I think we're definitely past that now but what's it been like to watch that grow
2: no it's definitely been something special I think the biggest thing for our sport is having guys that others find intriguing and cool and what better way of doing that is one winning two is you know playing good football on the field and three having guys pave the ways overseas and, and abroad and being someone that someone looks up to. And I think guys have been doing that. And I think the team collectively has been doing that. And I think it's been huge. It's been great to see the growth. I mean, I've been in the league for, I don't know, like 10 years now. And to see the evolution over the years and from when I started to now, I mean, it's made enormous strides. And I think it's truly amazing. And I think especially for the World Cup coming now, then in 2026, I mean, it's going to blow up. It's gonna blow up, and I'm hoping that we can continue on that front, and hopefully one day soccer could be the biggest sport in the United States.
5: You you mentioned the importance of staying present, right? You've got to buy right now, but of course, you know, come Thursday it's game time. Staying focused on task and training, etc., and not trying to look ahead too much. Do you have any like techniques for doing that? Do you unplug? How do you just stay? oriented on whatever's right in front of you and not look ahead.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that's just the battle of a footballer anyways. I mean, we all have aspirations to achieve different things, but right. for us, you can't get there without being here. And so it's about laying the groundwork and having a strong foundation and building those steps to get to that point. So for me, it's just a matter of the practice over the years that I've had to, to be here. And so for me, I mean, it's, it's something that's normal. It's something that, that I've done my whole career and like i said it's about you know using these trainings and these games to be in good form to show well and to hopefully be selected and hopefully from then on play
5: when you were coming up you know under 18s under under 20s under 21s if you could go back and talk to your younger self you know what would you tell yourself? I and mean, what do you think that you would have, as a younger player, knowing where your career would go, what What do you think your reaction might have been?
2: I couldn't even tell you. I think probably wouldn't believe it because I feel like when you're, you know, coming through youth national teams, like U15, you're like making the senior team so far away and there's so many steps and so much hard work and little things that go into it that there's no way I'll get to this point. So I don't have necessarily anything to kind of say to my younger self, but just enjoy the ride, enjoy, you know, the grind, enjoy the hardships and the triumphs. I mean, it's all part of it. I think this game in life is all about learning experiences. And my whole career is a testament to that. I mean, I've accomplished a lot of things, but I've also had a tremendous amount of downfalls and obstacles that obviously helped me, you know, dig deep and learn a lot about myself. And I think when the obstacles happen, when you triumph and you get over that hump, it makes the victory so much more glorious, I would say. Yeah, it's just about just enjoying the ride and just continue going, really.
5: When you were coming up, were there any players that you molded yourself after or, you know, bits of wisdom that you got from some of the, played next to Michael Bradley, for instance, like a lot of characters
2: who I think people know.
5: Was there any bit of wisdom imparted from any of the various people that you've played with that stuck with you over the years?
2: Yeah, I mean, I could go down the list. There's so many different things that I can hold on to. I mean, starting from my youth coach who, I mean, who truly believed in me. And I mean, I got to credit him for, you know, helping me get to this point. Oscar Pereja as well, coach at FC Dallas, who kind of just groomed me and took my game to the next level and just told me to be free and play free. And I think there's been similar words with all the players that, you know, I got to this point for a reason. So why change up now? Enjoy the game. Bring your attributes and play with confidence. I mean, playing alongside Michael Bradley, a guy that, you know, I admired for so many years. And then kind of just playing next to him was kind of a surreal feeling. And I think the biggest thing was he knew about me before I kind of, like, even could say anything. He knew my name. He knew, like, what I was doing, like, my attributes. He kind of knew everything, which I was like... Wow, you're paying attention to little old me. And it kind of just gave me that sense of comfortability when I was coming into the national team. And, I mean, a lot of those guys, Clint, the Josies, the, Tim Howards, Matt Beisler, Beasley, I mean, there were so many guys that kind of just, you know, trickled me along and helped invite me into the team that just made me feel super comfortable. And, you know, when you're feeling comfortable, it helps you become confident. And when you're confident, yeah. the games become a little bit easier. And so, I mean, I got to credit those guys for, you know, making me feel at home and make me feel comfortable and confident. I'm
5: looking ahead to the, the opening of the playoffs. I'm not going to ask you who you want to face or anything, but like as you're watching it, <laughs> are you going to be looking for little things? Like how do you approach, do you just shut it out or do you kind of, do you watch it as like a scouting exercise?
2: I kind of do it as both. I mean, I love watching games Yeah, and I'm a student of the game. I'm always learning. And I think it's a combination of, of you know, enjoying the game, but at the same time, you want to look at areas that we can exploit. And, I mean, we faced both teams, you know, a couple of times already this year. Galaxy a yeah. few times, so we're familiar with them as well. But, um, yeah, I think it's just a matter of, you know, things that, that we can exploit. I mean, it's a quick turnaround. I mean, the game is Saturday, tomorrow, and then we're already playing um, the following Thursday. Yeah. So, it's like, it's almost here. And, I mean, our focus level, I mean, I mean, Steve already reiterated it, but it was like, it starts today. And he was like, it's today, it's today, because their level of focus is super high because they're playing a the game tomorrow. And for us, like, we got to match that with having this bye week in training. So when the game comes Thursday, we're ready to to go with whoever we face.
5: Well, uh, good luck to you. He is Kellen Acosta, midfielder and uh, for defending Sporter Shield champions, LAFC, as well as a uh, player for the U.S. men's national team. Kellen, best of luck and everything.
2: No, I appreciate you. Thank you so much.
5: Messi and Ronaldo, even if you don't follow soccer slash football, you know who they are. They've dominated the world of sports for the better part of the last 20 years. Their rivalry was one that drew battle lines between fans, between friends, between nations, between clubs, uh, between sports apparel companies to help us unpack this unprecedented and titanic clash of characters. Please welcome Wall Street journalists John Clegg and Josh Robinson to TakeLine. They've published a book chronicling the rivalry between these two iconic athletes called Messi vs. Ronaldo. Josh and John, welcome to TakeLine. Josh, Jonathan, thanks for joining us to talk about Messi vs. Ronaldo, one rivalry, two goats, and the era that remade the world's game what was behind the idea for this how did this idea come together and then how how did you work together what was the synergy like in terms of writing it i'll start with you josh
1: so for us you know it, it basically our entire careers as journalists have coincided with this messy ronaldo era and we've never not covered them and now as we could kind of see the end coming we realized You know, it's time to start stepping back and figuring out what this all meant. What what was this fever dream that we just went through for 15 years where we had not one, but two of the greatest players of all time, all the time? Jonathan? Yeah, that's right. I think it was,
0: you know, as we sort of look back on the soccer era that we had covered, every sort of way that football had changed during that period seemed to you know, sort of tie back to Messi and Ronaldo and mm. the way that they had sort of, yeah, transformed the entire sport, that their sort of stardom had really sort of realigned European soccer. And there'd been sort of no real treatment at this point of like their sort of joint stories. There have been books written about Messi, there have been books written about Ronaldo, but there had never been a sort of serious treatment of their rivalry, which kind of almost became a character in in European soccer over the last sort of 20, 25 years.
5: What emerged in your research that surprised you? I think one of the things I think about when I think about these two players is, you know, obviously an incredible club rivalry between Barcelona and Real Madrid. It's a national rivalry. It's a corporate rivalry between Nike and Adidas. But in terms of like how these two men feel about each other. It's a black box. I have no idea. Did you get any insight into that?
1: Yeah, I think at various points over the past 15 years, you know, they have clearly not liked each other. Maybe more Ronaldo felt more antipathy towards Messi than the other way around. But what they realized fairly early on was that this rivalry existed and it very quickly outgrew both of them. It just became this other thing entirely and not just do you like Barca or Real better or Man United or eventually PSG? You know, it's, it became a worldview. Yeah. Which one you preferred said a lot about how you viewed soccer, how you viewed competitiveness, how you viewed art, you know, winning, what it meant to be great. You know, everything else was kind of shaped by that. And the other part of it is that once you're kind of in that dynamic, they cease to control it. Yeah. And ultimately, unlike a lot of other great sports rivalries, Messi and Ronaldo were only over on the same pitch maybe three dozen times. It's not like Rafa and Roger or Roger and Novak or Rafa and Novak or Steph and LeBron. You know, you get those situations where those guys are going at it face to face a lot. And Messi and Ronaldo, it was a bunch of classicos. And that was more or less it. You know, there's a menu Barcelona, but the encounters have been very few and far between. And so fans have filled that space with everything they want to project onto it.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. I think, you know, you're right in, in saying that the kind of thing has been a black box. And, and in some ways, Messi and Ronaldo are kind of quite unknowable creatures. You know, we don't really, they say very little beyond the sort of platitudes that every athlete comes out with. So it's hard to really, you know, get a sense of who they are and everything they feel, um, which is why I think what makes their kind of rivalry so powerful is that they are kind of really just they've become archetypes for a certain type of personality, a certain type of mentality, a kind of approach to sports, but also to life. And so one of the things that makes their rivalry so, so strong and makes people feel completely crazy about it is yeah. that the success of one is sort of seen as a direct, like refutation of the other's methods, right? Like Ronaldo's success is sort of directly diminishes Messi's accomplishments because it's been achieved in the completely opposite way. So, yeah, I think that's one of the sort of really kind of unique elements to this rivalry, which has made it sort of so strong and and made it such a sort of insane tribal thing online.
5: I think one of the more interesting aspects you mentioned about how this is really this entity, this rivalry really grew beyond the control of these two men. And I think the sponsorship aspect is interesting. The Wall Street Journal, your publication had an article snippet from the book about how Nike lost Messi and this became, you know, another aspect of their rivalry, Adidas versus Nike. How did that come about? It was really interesting.
1: Um, Well, we realized early on, you know, that this would be a, a major episode in the book because it's not every day that Nike, which had only recently come into soccer in a serious way, you know, they didn't take it really seriously until, you know, soccer came looking for Nike in 1994 with the World Cup in the U.S., So, you know, within the first decade of them caring about soccer, suddenly they find themselves with these two teenagers, one in Portugal and one in Spain at that point, who are both wearing Nikes, both tied to the swoosh. And for that brief moment in time, they couldn't have known it, but they would have had the opportunity to control both sides of the debate. And it's the same way Nike had Rafa and Roger for all those years. And what happened was they threw in their lot with. Cristiano, who was a little bit older. And as people came looking for Messi and people being Adidas at that point, they didn't realize what they had on their hands. And ultimately, you know, Messi's dad is his agent, Jorge, who is a prominent character in this book and keeps coming back and being a a difficult character often. And the things we heard from people internally at Nike was Well, you know, he was agitating for more money, for more considerations in other areas. And once Adidas sniffed out, you know, kind of detected that there was an opportunity here, they came in over the top with a million dollar a year offer. And Nike was like, "Eh, we'll just move on, not realizing what they were letting go.
0: I think one of the wildest parts of the entire episode was that Nike was not sort of convinced that Messi was going to be the star that he ultimately became. When we tend to think about Messi and his career. It's like he was placed on a soccer pitch at the age of 18 and his genius just sort of immediately sprang forth. But it's amazing to hear that within the Nike boardrooms, they were still very anxious about whether or not he would ultimately become the big star that people were talking about. They thought that he looked not much like an athlete. They knew that his eating habits were terrible. Messi basically consisted, subsisted on a diet of like Pepsi and pizza for his entire teenage years. And they were like, eh, maybe not. Maybe maybe um, Ronaldo, the sort of more classic, you know, vision of a superstar athlete is the guy we want. And this Messi, maybe he'll become a thing, maybe not. But they definitely did not foresee that he would become the sort of all-time great. That you know, funnily enough, it, you know, I think once for soccer people, as soon as Messi stepped on the field, it was like they knew. But yeah. it's amazing that the suits in Oregon had no idea.
5: Well, I think they probably looked at, what is this guy, 5'5 or 5'6? Yeah, they probably looked at the stats and were like, there's no way this little guy is going to dominate world soccer, right? That can't happen. I wonder if something about it was that.
1: Right. I I think there's definitely a piece of that. I think there's also a piece of it looking, you know, where you see him on the pitch, even when he's like running around, he looks like he's wearing, you know, a children's large. It's all of those things did not fit with. You know, the image of Nike, especially around soccer in the late 90s and early 2000s, where the people they had were Ian Wright and Eric Cantona and the the original Ronaldo. You know, those were amazing, big characters, big athletes. And here they had this kid who, even within his own locker room, was considered to be basically mute. And that's why when they lost him, the thing they used to say internally at Nike was, imagine how much trouble we'd have been in if Messi had a personality.
5: It strikes me now looking at... You know, as we enter the twilight, we're really in the middle of the twilight of, of these two players' respective careers, that it seems as if they are, to a certain extent, prisoners of their own success. Like, there was no way to transition from the euphoric highs of their careers to a late career stage, you know, Barca has basically been bankrupted by, you know, among many other things, the uh, fulfilling the wage demands of Leo Messi. And then and you look at Ronaldo now is kind of languishing on a uninspiring man you side. Was there ever going to be a way for these men to kind of gracefully exit the stage?
1: (laughs) I'm going to let John answer that. But what I would say is that just to your comment about the becoming prisoners of their own success, they weren't in there alone. They kind of brought everyone else in there with them. You know, Barcelona, because they were trapped having to spend to keep up with Messi's success and to keep giving him competitive teams, put itself in that prison. And Man United, you know, in bringing him back and making this big to do around at Cristiano. Saying he's back where he belongs, he's still a world beater. It's like you can't. It's it's ugly as soon as you start to minimize him a little bit. I mean, every he was substituted this weekend and came off shaking his head after not doing a whole lot of anything.
0: Yeah, I think the issue is that their success and the enormous amounts of money that they command for doing their jobs meant that there was only a small handful of teams that could ever entertain the thought of signing them, and when you're Options are limited to like five or six teams across the biggest leagues in Europe. There's not really, like you say, like there is no graceful way out. Ronaldo could not drop down to a sort of mid-tier club because no mid-tier club could possibly afford him. So he's left sort of trying to map out the kind of final waning years of his career, bouncing, like I say, from this sort of small cabal of clubs that could pay his wages, trying to find the place where he might be able to get the most playing time, trying to find a place where he can still, you know, relive some of those old glories in the Champions League. And, you know, he's essentially stuck at Man United. You know, he wanted to leave the summer, but couldn't find any way out. There was no exit strategy there because, you know, that they looked into Bayern Munich, they, you know, but like I say, once the small list of clubs that could afford him have been exhausted, there's nowhere to go. There's nowhere to, there's nowhere left.
5: And certainly Messi still playing at least statistically on a high level, but for a PSG team that is you know, a comedy waiting to happen in any given moment. And it seems like Kylian Mbappe wants out. As we look back, what in your minds are the, the iconic moments of these two men, you know, on the same pitch?
1: I, I think one that stands out for us, and, and there's a we did a whole chapter on it, was the four classicos in 18 days. In retrospect, that was a truly insane spell of sports. I mean, 18 days is the length of the Olympics, Right. But in the space of one Olympics, you have four Classicos with both guys at the total peak of their powers. And what was amazing about them in those days and where they were playing with Rail and Barca is that their rivalry came to piggyback on an already existing super rivalry. And as I said before, all the things that they embodied became attached to all the things that, you know, Barca and its whole image of like, Catalan separatism came to represent as well, and Real Madrid being like the old house of Spain. And somehow both of those guys fit perfectly into those narratives. It was seamless. And so for those 18 days, you've got this psychodrama playing out on a national level in Spain and around the world, involving these two men trying to get one over on the other, while your cast of supporting characters includes Florentino Perez, Jose Mourinho, Pep Guardiola, and this basically everyone who was anyone for the next 10 years in global soccer was kind of there. And that confluence of characters and general mania is something we don't get a lot in sports. And so those four Classicos were just just become too much for everyone, even Pep Cracked. And the fact that even with
0: those enormous characters also in the game, the fact that everyone around the world saw those games as Messi versus Ronaldo mm. tells you everything that you need to know about the kind of the, the stardom, the enormous impact that they had on those games and soccer generally, that every single one was seen as a kind of referendum on Messi versus Ronaldo.
5: The book is Messi versus Ronaldo, one rivalry, two goats in the era that remade the world's game. Uh, the authors. Joshua Robinson and Jonathan Clegg were kind enough to join us. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thanks a lot. Thanks so much. Our pleasure.
5: That's it for us. Follow and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and check out my pop culture and entertainment podcast, X-Ray Vision, which comes out every Friday. Goodbye. Take Line is a Crooked Media production. The show is produced by Ryan Wallerson and Zuri Irvin. Our executive producers are myself and Sandy Drort. Engineering, editing, and sound design by the great Sarah De Alaska and the folks at Chapter 4. And our theme music is produced by Brian Vasquez. Mia Kelman is on the Zoom for vibes, and the vibes are fantastic all the time.